Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 75. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And it's great to be back with you. And our main topic for tonight, we're going to be uh, very excitingly joined by Associate Professor Sheila Digatardi about her recent research on uh, language, the educated use of language, particularly with young children. There was an interesting media article about this little while, and we're very glad that she's going to be joining us. But uh, before we go to that, we did want to acknowledge some news uh, we just sort of heard about in the last day or two as we're recording this on a Wednesday night, um, that uh, artist and author and various other pretty amazing things in the early childhood sector, Ursula Colby, unfortunately, passed away uh, due to an illness. This was, um, I saw this on the uh, the Patamellon Press uh, page, who published a fair bit of her work. And I think um, probably particularly for Leanne and I, who have, um, you know, who have worked in the sector and are qualified as, as educators, um, uh, want to just quickly acknowledge, acknowledge this. Um, uh, Leanne will probably have far more to say, because I think, Leanne, you uh, knew her, I, I certainly didn't, but I just wanted to you know, quickly, you know, uh, mention particularly two of her books, um, Rapunzel's Supermarket and It's Not a Bird Yet, as um, really helping me in my studies and really opening my um, my mind to approaching art with young children. Art is not my the first or even probably second or third or fourth love. I'm not very good at doing it either by myself or with children. Uh, but the way she approached it was very much about... Um, you know, really thinking about how children engage with it. It's not necessarily about how the adult is involved, but really um, respecting and valuing the work of young children as an artist. So it was it was sad to hear it because I, I still, particularly with It's Not a Bird Yet, I, it's on my bookshelf and I, I find myself picking it up every now and then just to read some, uh, the way she talks about children in particular was was pretty was pretty amazing. But, you know, Leanna, you, you, you actually knew um, Ursula, I think, didn't you? Oh, well, like a lot of people of my generation, Ursula was our um, art lecturer at Teachers College in Newtown. And uh, she was an amazing, she was an incredible artist, but she was very dedicated to um, early childhood and to education for uh, in teacher preparation around art and creativity. And she was one of those iconic women of those times that just kind of helped us to see the world in a very different way and to understand ourselves in a very different way as well as artists ourselves um, and then to work with children in that creative, imaginative way. So I think she has had such a powerful impact on so many people over time. And uh, I just was looking back on an article um from uh, the Saman and Slattery publication Pedagogy and, and one of the articles was Wendy Shepherd um, talking about Ursula and the influence that she had on the program at Mia Mia and um, well the influence that she had on Wendy and then the influence that she had on on Wendy's you know development of her um, early childhood program and art and she I, I just read you this quick section because I think it's really very beautiful and she said one day now a dear friend and colleague Ursula Colby wandered in and said I would like to do some research about children using art materials she walked around and said Wendy why are you doing this I would justify why I had the novelty activity out she then questioned yes but can they get better at it and I I just love that picture of Ursula really pushing Wendy and asking her, you know, why she was doing it. It must have been something like straw painting or something like that. (laughs) And she talks about setting up this beautiful art, helping them to set up a big art studio. And uh, she said she, she, Ursula became 
their muse at that centre. And I thought that was really very beautiful and very inspiring. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's probably not much more of an impact you can have in the sector by then uh, affecting the educators and people who work in the sector. Um, I think it's just important. I, I sort of had a quick look at, um, I realised once I heard the news that although I'd read her books, I, I didn't know that much about uh, Ursula and just and doing a little bit of um, research before recording this. Um, I was, I was sort of, it was amazing to see that she, she still taught and she still worked with young children. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I think I'd kind of assumed that, um, and this is maybe, this is, you know, maybe because what you see in other sectors, particularly is, you know, people will teach for a little while and then just write books and, and, or become, you know, and do consultancy or something. But, um, you know, uh, Ursula was an artist teacher uh, back in Canada, but she taught at Mia Mia, um, and became a lecturer in early childhood art, which is obviously where you encountered her, Leanne. So she was, you know, despite doing all this other work, she, you know, I think it seems like that, that core, you know, approach of still working directly with young children and with educators never went away. So, um, definitely a, a big a big loss for the sector. Yeah, and to be remembered with just great wonder and thankfulness, I think, with the influence that she has had. Yeah. So I think uh, our, our condolences to, to Ursula's family and obviously to everyone who's um, who's who's missing Ursula. And um, I imagine you know Wendy Wendy Shepherd will will be right up there with. Um, we'll definitely miss Ursula coming in and, and telling her what she needs to improve. I I don't know what I'd do without a whole bunch of people doing that with me uh, in the sector for for my entire career. Um, I guess the, the recommendation here might be there's there's a lot of people commenting on. Uh, Padamellon Press's Facebook post just with memories of Ursula or passing on this stuff. So if, if you're listening to this and wanted to do the same, that's probably a good place to head to. Uh, but we will move on from, from that today. We will, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back uh, with Associate Professor Sheila DiGatardi. Stay with us. All right, it's our pleasure now to welcome Associate Professor Sheila Digatardi to the podcast. Sheila is the Associate Professor in Early Childhood Education with Macquarie University, and she specializes in infant-toddler curriculum, pedagogy, and learning, um, and is also the Deputy Head of Research in the Department of Educational Studies for MU. Sheila, welcome to the Early Education Show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. We've been looking forward to talking uh, to you. So we've, we've probably got a few things to chat to you about, Sheila, but uh, in particular, you've got some recent uh, research out on uh, sort of language development and educator interactions with children in uh, early education and care settings that actually made the media, which is great. I'm always a big fan when research on early childhood uh, hits the media. So I guess did you want to start maybe by just... Um, Telling us how, how this research came about. What was the what was the genesis of this particular research? Sure, um, the research that that we've just recently recently published is really one paper in what is turning into a suite of um, research papers that is looking at the language environment in rooms that uh, specifically cater for children under the age of two in early childhood centres, and it came about because. There was a lack of research about the language aspects of the interaction that children were experiencing in early childhood centres. There's quite a lot in home contexts, and we know quite a lot about what matters in home contexts in terms of how interactions support children's language development, but we can't necessarily 
translate that to an early childhood centre because it's a very different context. So this is what we set out to do. We set out to look at what are the characteristics of the interactions and which of those interactions potentially then might facilitate the children's development and what can we do then to help educators and to support educators so that they can provide the best interactions as possible for the, you know these young children. Sheila, I was, I'm keen for you to um, explain exactly how you carried out the research. What was your, what was your approach and method to this? Because I have heard you speak on this research before and I found it really interesting how you, you know, obtained your data for this. Sure. We, with um, the children who participated in this study, and we had about 60 children who each attended a different early childhood room, and these focus children, as we called them, focus infants, they all wore a little, uh, uh, what's called a, a digital language processor, uh, which sounds like a very um, complicated uh, device, but it's a little sound recorder that they wore in a vest that they wore over their normal clothing um, and it was custom made to record all of the sound that the children heard and all of the sound obviously that they produced as well so it it recorded exactly what those children experienced from that first person perspective because they were wearing this little sound recorder on their chest and what this sound recorder does, once you obtain that uh, recording, is that you can then put that sound recording into specialized software, and it generates a whole lot of statistics from that sound file. It runs it through all kinds of complicated algorithms that analyzes that sound file, and it gives us estimations um, of different features of the language environment. And this is what we used in the study that we've just published. Oh, well, I didn't know that it ran through the that, the algorithm stuff. That's phenomenal. Did somebody, yes, write a, somebody wrote a special program, did they, for this? That's right. It's a custom-made uh, device with the specialised software that goes with it. And they've been working on this for a number of years now and refining it and refining the kind of statistics that it can get out. So it does, it analyzes the sound file and it can give you statistics on, and uh, this is what we used in our research, on um, the number of words, uh, adult words that that child has experienced over the course of recording, for example, and things like how many vocalizations has that child produced, how much unclear speech has that child experienced? And this is what I would probably best uh, describe as uh, cocktail party speech, that background noise that we all uh, experience and that there's quite a lot of in early childhood centres. So it provides you with these estimations. And the other really good thing about this recorder is that it enables you to take more than just a snapshot of a child's day. It can record, it has the potential to record up to 16 hours of uh, straight recording. We didn't use it for that long. We recorded three hours. And that then accounts for those natural peaks and troughs in a child's experience when sometimes they get a lot of talk and other times they might not get very much talk. So it allowed us to average out over that child's everyday experience at the centre, on average, how much talk was that child hearing and how many vocalisations was that child producing? 
And Sheila, can I just ask, A, is this a, a world first that this kind of research has been done? And secondly, how you recruited the child centre, child, um, you know, the education care centres to provide the, the children? Um, is it a world first? In an early childhood centre, it's probably one of the first ones that's used this recording device. Mostly it's been used in research in the home. Um, in terms of recruiting early childhood centres, we worked really closely with the centres that um, agreed to participate. And I guess it's about uh, making it very clear to the centres that we're not going to be disrupting the child um, in any way, shape or form. As long as the child is happy to wear the little vest with the, the little recorder in it, they go about their own um, experiences and we're not disturbing the child. We're not asking them to do anything different at all. And so we found that parents and educators, once we explained that, that we weren't going to be disrupting their routine or their day um, and that we were going to work closely and respectfully with them and if the child became upset or if anything happened, we will stop. Um, and, you know, we'll only resume again once things are, are fine. Um, once we explain that to educators, they were very happy to support us in the research. I think they understood the importance of the research as well and the potential that this research had to ultimately support them and support others in the profession in, um, you know, their... their uh, ability to provide the kinds of interactions that they really want to do for these children. So Sheila, I think in the in the media article in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, mm. I think I think it's probably fair to say the uh, how it was presented there as a results are maybe mixed as a, as a broad summary. Do you, do you want to I guess tell us what you know, you know in, in summary I guess what the findings were from the research? Yeah, sure. So we were interested in looking at um, how many words these children were experiencing over the course of the time and there's a there's a couple of reasons why we wanted to look at that to start off with the research in the home context suggests quite strongly that there's a lot there's a massive variation in the amount of words that children hear over the course of a day and that that sheer quantity of words actually does predict these children's language development. So we wanted to see whether we get the same kind of level of variation in an early childhood centre because nobody had looked at that. But it wasn't just about the quantity of the children's words. We were also interested in saying, well, if there is variation, what comes along with that variation? What other characteristics are associated with this variation? And we wanted to look at whether the quality of the interactions was related to the quantity of the talk. So this And you found that it did? It yeah, was. we did, absolutely. So we found that when we rated the quality of the language interactions that were happening in the whole room, so not just the language interactions that the focused child experienced, but as a whole in the room, when we uh, used a rating scale to, uh, to to get a rating of that quality, we found that rooms that were rated as having a higher quality overall, those children then were 
getting more uh, experience with um, with with that type of talk that the DLP was um, measuring for us. Sheila, I think um, in looking at the the outcome of the research, there was a, a sort of higher quality of language with higher qualified staff. Yeah, that was the other thing that we looked at. So we wanted to, to look at the, is it quantity or is it quality or do they go hand in hand, which is what we found. And then what were some of the elements of the organisation of the room that then um, were associated with this? And we found that, yes, rooms that were, um, that had uh, staff with higher qualifications in them, those rooms tended to have a higher quality of interactions and therefore more the children were experiencing more um, word input experience. So, yes, if there was a, a qualified degree, qualified teacher in the room, that those rooms tended to then be exhibiting more broadly that higher quality of language interaction. And how many of the, the participant services, how many did have a degree qualified teacher in the rooms? Um, from memory, um, I think it was about 14 or 15 of our nearly 60 centres, so approximately 25% of our uh, services who agreed to participate had a degree qualified staff. But I do have to say that because That's we... scary. Mm-hmm. But... Um, it's that's fairly normal in in New South Wales anyway. That um, quite often the degree qualified early childhood teachers are going into working with the preschool age children or the older age children. Um, it's quite rare. Why? 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 <laughs> well, well, you can tell me, Lisa. But I think that that's also a historical thing, as you know, Lisa, that it's it's historical that that the early childhood teacher would be in with the three to fives, and that would that's for a whole range of reasons. But yeah, I think surely there's been enough research now that says that you know you need your best people in the earliest years. Well, what you, Sheila, do you think that you've also got to have people who are interested in working absolutely. with with babies? Absolutely, I think what the findings of my study are showing, and the findings of some other studies uh, internationally that are showing, yes, that degree qualified staff are important contributors to quality with infant toddler rooms. I think we have to interpret this within the context of the policies and the constraints that are currently framing the early childhood system in Australia. And, yes, certainly we want people in there who want to work with those younger age groups who also have other attributes that they can bring to to that workplace. And I think what the findings of my study are saying, I, I would like to have, ideally, a degree-qualified teacher in every room in an early childhood centre, regardless of the age of the children. Can we make you Minister for Education then? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I've found in talking with staff who are working, you know, across across the centre, oh. quite often early childhood teachers uh, don't don't have a, an enthusiasm for working with babies until they until they have a go, and then yeah. when they 
when they have had the experience of being in those babies' room, then they they wouldn't go go to a different room after that. They become very um, engaged and passionate yeah. about that work with very young children. That's right. So it's it's not just an issue of saying, well, we need to put you know teachers into babies' rooms, like you said. Quite often, early childhood um, teachers don't see that as their role. We've got this um, dilemma, I think, in society, and it still extends across the early education um, sector that uh, people don't want to work with babies. There's this idea of, well, what can you teach a baby? What can you do with a baby? And Unless we help our early childhood educators, whether or not they are teachers or diploma qualified or certificate qualified, to see the incredible growth and learning and appreciate that incredible growth and learning and also understand the role that they can take in that learning um, and how crucial they are, unless we can work on that aspect of um, our profession, we're not going to get any further in terms of the argument about having um, high-qualified educators in every room um, in the Early Childhood Centre. Can I ask two questions, Sheila? One is, don't laugh, Liam and Liam. <laughs> the first one is um, you applied your own ratings to determine the quality of the interactions in those infant rooms. Did you cross-correlate that with the services, whole services rating against the national quality framework? Okay. Um, just one little correction. We didn't actually apply our own ratings. We used a standardised um, rating oh, tool right, that is sorry. used yep. uh, you know, internationally to rate um, quality in different aspects. So, so we used yep. that tool. No, we didn't. We didn't look at the national um, quality ratings of the of the centre um, for a couple of reasons. When we uh, were collecting this data, we started this study, I've got to think back now, in 2014, and there were still quite a few centres that had not got their rating by that stage. So, so we weren't really able to look at it. And also we didn't really want to look at it at, at that point in time. We wanted to really focus in on the aspects of the language interactions without kind of muddying the water, I suppose, by trying to bring our national rating systems into it as, as well. So, so yeah, the answer to that question, I guess, is no, we didn't do it. Yep. We've got okay. a current yep. study we're about to, to launch where we are going to look at some slightly different elements of, of quality in infant toddler rooms and we are going to now that most centers have been rated well all centers have been rated once and some are going through for the second time we've got a more stable kind of um set of information about that now so that is something that we are going to look at my second question is just about i get frustrated a lot with research like this because it's obviously really important. How do educators get to learn about it? Okay. I, it, that is a tricky question 
Um, obviously, what, what we try to do with our research is we try to communicate it back to participants. We try to communicate the findings back and we try to, to you know, disseminate it through professional development and so on and so forth. Um, and we hope, I guess, that it will get into things like textbooks and so on. So it will build the professional knowledge, but that takes time. Um, and so we're always... Uh, very conscious of the need to try and translate our research and and take it back to the educators and to the profession in general. But it's also, I think, it's uh, the role of, of things like shows of your like your own um, and other ways in which we can kind of ex- try and explain our research, and hopefully that will then. Um, be able to communicate with the sector much better than something like academic journals can do. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no pressure on the early education show. We'll do our best. But yeah. um, now, I, we, we kind of, uh, I know that we've, you've actually kind of answered this question in a couple of different ways throughout the conversations, but I thought it might be worth bringing it into one question. But can you, I guess, tell us um, from your own research and from the research of others, why, why is the use of rich language so important with, with young children? Okay, there's just such a wealth of uh, research knowledge now that children don't just simply develop language. They don't just absorb it passively. They don't. It's it won't just simply happen. Um, if we want to support children's language development uh, and if we want to facilitate it, they need these rich interactions. And by rich interactions, I'm talking about interactions that are responsive, that provide things like rich vocabulary for the children. And even for very young children, a rich vocabulary has been shown to be important. And also that encourage those infants to respond back to us. And that starts at the nonverbal stage where infants will respond back with expressions, they will look at you in the eye, they will stop maybe moving or babbling when you start to talk to them and then when when you stop, they will start moving and babbling. That's the start of conversation when you have that to and fro kind of interaction. And what those interactions do as the child then starts to enter the world of language and starts to learn words and so on, what those interactions do is not only do they provide the child with language content that helps them then to develop more words, develop their grammar and so on, but it also communicates to the child that they are a language user and that when they have something to say, they can say it and it will be listened to and it will be responded to. And that's really the basis of what we want children to learn so that when they get older, that they can engage in the kind of interactions that we hear about all of the time. We hear in our literature, in our curriculum documents, that children learn through interactions. Now, unless we start socialising them into engaging in those interactions right from birth, then those children will not have that ability to engage in those learning-rich interactions when they're older. So it's not about interacting with children once they start talking. 
It's about interacting with them and responding to them and encouraging a response from them, um, as I said, right from those early stages. And we know that those kind of interactions then support their language development. And so, oh, sorry, Liam, did you have a second question there? I feel like... I was jumping in. No, that's all right. I think my only probably other question was going to be, so um, based on the research you found, um, Sheila, how are you, like, I guess, what do you hope uh, professionals and, and services do with, with this research you've uncovered? What are you hoping they'll, they'll go back um, after listening to this episode and reading your research and go and do the very next day? I, I would like them to go back to the centres to start off with and just be conscious about when do they interact when do they use language interactions with very young children in their services? Are there children that they feel more comfortable using language with, whereas there might be other children where they may not use um, as much language? I'd like them to start off by being conscious about it and really being self-reflective in terms of when do they interact, when do they sit back, and then start to question why and start to think about are there opportunities where I didn't interact that I could sensitively um, sit next to a child and just chat to that child about what they're doing. So um, I think, Sheila, I'm just sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I think that the your point is about the instructional language using, you know, the instructional language is the sort of language that you've, you've picked up that is not as rich. So could you give an example of, you know, what might be the difference between instructional language and, and the rich language that you're talking about? Yeah. When, when we look at interactions, we can classify them into two very broad functions of interactions. The first one is this kind of instructional, which is the managerial, the getting things done language. And we do this all the time with, with each other and with infants and toddlers because there are certain things that have to be done. So things like uh, giving directions. Um, can you put your hat on? Then we'll go play outside. That's a, a, a managerial use of language. Things like uh, finding out what the child wants. Would you like apple or banana for morning tea? That's another um, managerial type of language. And the purpose behind that language really is to um, regulate the child's behaviour um, and so it has that social function. We want to get things done. Now, that we tend to find has less educational value. It has value in terms of the child's maybe self-regulation um, and for, uh, you know, helping group cohesiveness. It has that value. It has less educational value when compared with talk where we are following in the child's interests and curiosities and we're talking to the child about what they're doing and about attributes of what they're doing. So if they're playing with, um, I'm just thinking of an example here. I, I saw a lovely example where the toddler was pushing a train up and down a train track. And the teacher took that opportunity to, to talk to the child about what the train was doing, that it was going up, that it was rolling down, that it was... The carriages were sticking together. Can you see the magnet? Look, it's sticking the carriage together. All of that conversation, it was very natural, but that's more educational. We're actually giving the child information. We're genuinely giving information, and then the child is also giving us information back. 
Right, and so that's that's a bit of that. Um, I'm just what's just come to mind is that serve and return um, analogy, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it is about that giving and taking of information, not just giving and taking of directions. Um, and it's the information aspect that, with it, comes a very rich vocabulary. And in some follow-up work that we're doing at the moment that we're yet to publish, we're finding that the more instructional interaction, so that managerial talk, if a conversation is initiated with that managerial talk uh, with a function in mind, that tends to terminate, that conversation tends to terminate very quickly. So it's that situation of, would you like some peas? Yes end of conversation. It's got done. The function has has been formed, end of conversation. But when the conversation was initiated uh, with that genuine intent to share information, those conversations, even with very young children, tended to be more sustained. We tended to have more give and take uh, because there's more to talk about. There's always something else that you can add to it. There's always some other bit of information that you can comment on and have a chat about. Yeah, I've got I've got about another five questions, but the others <laughs> might ask. <laughs> um, can I just throw in one? How did like you said that this kind of research has been done in a home setting? Yeah. How how did the centres compare to um, the volume and the quality of language found? in children of this age in the home setting? Okay. The, the kind of, we, we can't really compare it directly because it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. But in terms of the number of words, so our what we called our adult word count um, statistic that we had, we found that we were seeing very similar levels of variation in terms of the highest and the, the lowest um, infant experience with adult words um, as what has been shown in, in some research in home contexts. So, um, so in terms of a basic comparison, I can't answer that question because I don't have, we didn't collect data in the home, but it seems like early childhood centres, we're getting the same kind of levels um, when we just look at, at basic comparisons with the statistics given in other, um, in other contexts in the home. Um, Sheila, what I, I was going to ask you something that was sort of connected um, to this research and others that I've been um, observing, and it seems like there's a lot more well, new technology being used, an interesting technology. What inspired you to to use this sort of technology, or, or did you, you know, how did you come across it? Um. I, I came across it by chance, and I, to be honest with you, I don't remember how I came across it. Um, I really, genuinely don't remember. But uh, just this one to, morning in the breakfast cereal packet, out came this piece. <laughs> I, I suspect I read an article where they were talking about it, and then I googled it and found the organisation that. Um, that manufactures it. It's it's manufactured and it's um, 
administrated through an organization in the U.S. called LENA, which stands for Language and Environment Analysis. And it's a not-for-profit organization. And it was formed on the basis of some pivotal work that was demonstrating that the sheer quantity of adult talk to babies um, was an important predictor of their language development. So they decided to go out and actually develop something that could enable researchers to get more than small snapshots of observations because they recognize that peaks and, and troughs. So that's why we decided to use it because I've done research in the past where I've maybe videoed for 15 minutes or, or something like that. And then, of course, you then have to transcribe that. And it takes a lot of time and it takes an awful lot of money to do that kind of research, whereas this provides us with longer periods of observation. So it provides us with pretty reliable estimations um, that enables us to explore this uh, without the cost of having to transcribe huge um, files, uh, sorry, huge video observations, um, and, yeah, so avoiding that associated cost that goes with that. That's great. So, Sheila, I know the answer to do we need more research uh, from from research is always going to be yes. But is there yes. like are there are there, are there um, I guess uh, is there is there particular things you'd like to either find out more about or or are there things you're actually working on following on from this study? Yeah. Well, well we are. We've just started a follow on from this study. So there's a number of papers that have been published from this study, and they're all just uh, describing what is going on in the infant-toddler classroom from a range of different perspectives and isolating a range of different things. What we are still to find out is whether or not those things truly do matter for children's language development because we don't have any longitudinal studies that um, well, that have looked at whether or not these things matter. But also, just across the board, we don't have any longitudinal studies in Australia, where the focus has been on infants' experience in their early childhood classroom, uh, in infancy, to then follow those children through to their preschool age. So we were fortunate last year, at the end of last year, to gain an Australian Research Council grant to do exactly that. So we are about to start collecting data. We've had tremendous support from early childhood centres um, coming on board to help us uh, collect some data from, we're hoping to get over 200 children this time, uh, collect some data from over 200 children and follow those children up then two years later to see, well, what is it that really does matter? The other thing that we've built into this study is we're also collecting data from the home. So we will be able to say, well, which, which, uh, how, how does the home environment and the early childhood environment work together to support children's development and what aspects support that? So, yeah, that's, that's one thing that we are just getting going on now. But there's so much more as well to be, to be looked at. Um, the whole issue of is it quantity that matters or is it quality that matters? Um, we need to unpack that. Um, a lot more and also there's a question of well if you want to increase 
quantity of talk, for example? Do you do that by supporting educators to increase their quality? We don't know which one leads to which, um, whether increasing the quantity leads to quality or whether increasing the quality leads to increases in quantity. So there's, there's, as I said, there's so many questions yet to be answered. Um, there are and there's so many there's so much stuff there I think that's um, one of the things that you were saying was that the early childhood settings have been contributed so much by being involved and um, I think that that maybe if you can sort of talk a little bit about that because I think where services are willing to put themselves out there it's a big it's a big risk sometimes yes. um, but we have such generosity in the sector in terms of engaging in research. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think that on, on the surface level, yes, it can be perceived as a risk because people, you've got researchers coming into your centre with video cameras and we're taking observations and there's always that thought that we're, we're judging people. Um, but I guess... What we try and, and um, reassure educators and centres who come on board is that that's not the purpose of what we're doing, um, that not only will we maintain their confidentiality at all costs, but also that it's not about judging any one particular centre or any one particular educator or anything like that. It's about finding out how and when those rich interactions can occur so that we can then put structures in place that support the whole sector so that they can, um, you know, have those structures in place that will support their practice. Mm. That's great. There'll be a, I think we'll, uh, what it sounds like to me is so we'll definitely be having you on again, Sheila, to talk about <laughs> Uh, some of these future things, but if people want to um, find out more about uh, the research we were talking about tonight, yeah, what, what, what's the uh, what's the easiest way for people to to um, to learn more about that research? Um, I think um, if you Google me and find me on the Macquarie University website, uh, people can always drop me a line. Um, they can always contact me, and I'm very happy to send out uh, the papers that have been published. So that's probably the best way. Um, to get in touch with us. We're hoping with our new grant to have a website up and running by the end of the year. Uh, once we get our, our data collection all sorted, that will happen and then people will be able to have a look at that and we'll have regular updates in terms of that. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're the main ways that, that people can contact us at this point in time. Wonderful. Well, um Sheila, thank you very much for your time tonight. Good luck with the upcoming research. Um, and, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you coming and speaking with us. You're very welcome. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Early Education Show. Thanks again to Associate Professor Sheila DiGitardi. Uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. You have been listening to the Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs, Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the support the show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com 
or on Facebook and Twitter with the username Early Edu Show. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.